morning. Um, I understand uh, about Friday there was an email to the church, and there's you can click on a link where there's the PowerPoint and recording from last week. So if you're missing that, um, thanks. So um, as you know, this is the second week um, of looking at. Uh, the early church. Um, we have six uh, weeks to do this throughout. Um, difficult to choose exactly what to say. In fact, there's probably a lot more decisions of what I can't cover in six weeks looking at 2,000 years of church history. Uh, my selection is partly based on uh, what are the turning points. Last week we talked about Mark Knoll's book with that title, Turning Points. Um, I was fortunate to be a Mark Knoll student and do my master's uh, thesis under Mark Knoll, which was a, a great pleasure. And that uh, the fruit of that will come out uh, hopefully next week uh, when we look at uh, the early Renaissance and early part of the Reformation. But uh, today we're still looking at the early church. I'm coming at this uh, from uh, wearing my historian hat mostly. Uh, a lot of you have uh, looked at the early church through the book of Acts and other things like that. And so what I'm trying to do is point out things that sometimes aren't uh, as well known about the early church. Uh, the six weeks that we're doing is also on the first PowerPoint. I had a handout last week, and if any of you... Uh, still want the handout, I could make some more copies for next week just to see uh, the general uh, flow of where we're going. So we're starting with the early church. Now, next last week, we looked at the early church uh, in its first few years, uh, and we could note that uh, there was no even flow from a radius around any of the original five cities. There were five cities that were well known. Alexandria, uh, Jerusalem, Antioch, Constantinople, and Rome. Um, and Christianity is spreading. It, it goes very slowly. Uh, by the time Constantine will refer to that today, becomes a Christian emperor in 312. Uh, then, in fact, Christianity spreads a lot more. So without further ado, we'll get to what I have today, which is probably too much to cover already. <laughs> so we're looking at the early church uh, from uh, post-apostolic church until uh, essentially the Nicene Creed, which is 325. Uh, Augustine's going to also fit in here at the end. We'll see how far we get there. So let's go. Um, this was probably the last slide we ended with, uh, the end of the apostolic age. Uh, this is a picture by Caravaggio, if you know anything of Caravaggio, very uh, striking pictures uh, from the 17th century Baroque period. Uh, but this would be the crucifixion of St. Peter. Most of them uh, did not go down uh, peacefully. <laughs> and uh, we can see here uh, the emotion in this, but uh, Peter, uh, like many, uh, died uh, as martyrs. Martyrdom, of course, in the early church becomes a badge. Uh, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Um, and so we can see that uh, different apostles 
uh, died in different ways. Uh, this is St. Andrew's cross here, uh, which is instead of the, the horizontal vertical, uh, a crisscross. And of course, over time, that's become a symbol uh, on flags uh, uh, and uh, in many different ways. Uh, the early Christian church, of course, had to be clandestine, right? They couldn't worship in public. Uh, the Romans certainly knew they were there. Uh, they were a minor distraction in the first and second centuries. Uh, by the third century, however, uh, they were becoming a distraction that the Roman Empire didn't want to put up with. Uh, we see that they uh, often can meet underground in catechism, cate uh, catacombs uh, underneath here. We can see the baptismal font uh, at the end of here. We start to see graffiti on the walls of fish and uh, the, uh, the Eucharist there. Um, early Christian symbols, a lot of people see the fish at the back of the car, maybe don't know exactly what that might mean. It's an acronym uh, for the Greek word fish, but it really means Jesus Christ, God's Son, our Savior. Um, and so that was a, a, a symbol they used in the early uh, church. Graffiti on the wall as well, the Alpha and the Omega, the Cairo, we'll be looking at that in a minute. Uh, the Dove of Peace, all were ways and means by which Christians would have this identity uh, in secret. As I said, Constantine, of all things, becomes emperor uh, and converts to Christianity in 312. Um, he is said to have had a conversion because he's quite impressed with how the early Christians endured under suffering and decided to make a wager, uh, not quite like Pascal's wager later on, but a wager that if this God is real and I put the Cairo on my shields and on my flags and I go, uh, I will have victory, and he does. Uh, but it's Constantine who is living in Rome and moves the, church, moves the capital from Rome to Byzantium, which he renames the polis, which means city-state in Greek, the polis of Constantine, so it's well known as Constantinople, if you understand that. Even Istanbul in Arabic now uh, is a play on that, so it's the polis of Constantine. What that does, however, is weakens Rome, most of the army, the, the uh, funding goes over to Constantinople, leaving Rome uh, really a sitting duck for the Goths later on uh, to uh, take it over. But we see the great holy wisdom, Sophie, uh, built uh, there in the capital. Now, uh, so I want to look at the early church for two great questions they had. Um, the first obvious question is, um, how does Christianity differ from Judaism, right? Uh, as you know, there were two types of Jews, if we uh, break them up a little bit. Uh, the more orthodox, Hasidic, Hebrew-speaking Jews in and around Jerusalem. Uh, like today, however, many Jews... Uh, were in diaspora, they were living in the Greek world. Hebrew was no longer their formative language. They had to learn Hebrew. Many of them are living in places like Antioch and in the Greek world. Uh, they had a tendency, like Reformed Jews today, to sort of 
drop some of the strict uh, rules. And so we do get early Christians among both of them, right? So more, uh, more Orthodox Jews, and they, of course, in the book of Acts, you can read about the struggle between Jerusalem and Antioch, uh, things like eating meat offered to idols, uh, what does it mean to be a Christian in that way? So we'll note those, those sorts of things. But uh, Gentiles, of course, uh, created a whole other uh, question. Uh, and so we're really asking the question uh, now during the time when Gentiles uh, had already uh, been uh, the greater conversion uh, uh, element. Uh, so the first one is, uh, what's the main difference? Probably a little easier to uh, see here is Jesus, of course, is the Messiah. Now, um, Messiah in Hebrew translated to Greek is Christos. So we get the idea of Jesus Christ, right, from that idea, Jesus the Messiah. And so that's the first uh, great thing. And by the time we get to the Nicene Creed in 325, we can see uh, uh, this whole issue. Uh, the second one uh, is more difficult to deal with, and in the Reformed tradition, we probably take this very seriously as well, uh, not so much in the dispensational or perhaps Baptistic uh, uh, communities, but uh, what is the freedom from the Mosaic law? Now, of course, we know in Jesus' time when he uh, plucked grain on the Sabbath and did certain things to make a point, he wasn't trying to go against the, uh, the, the uh, Mosaic law, but he was making a point about freedom of the gospel. So this is a real issue in the early church. To what degree are we Jews or not Jews? Um, and we get some variations from the early church itself. Um, 1 Corinthians 8 exempts Christians from dietary and ritual laws. Um, and there's also something in Rome, in Romans about natural law. And that's something we could talk about later on in the course, although that could be a whole Sunday school uh, class in itself. But Romans says what you have known uh, of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Uh, and so Christians are accepting the early Judaic understanding of imago Dei, or in the image of God, uh, and this is going to be important. I'm putting it here because the second great question is going to be about uh, what do we do with Greek and Roman philosophy? And we have to remember uh, Imago Dei isn't just for Christians or Jews. Uh, all people uh, are made in God's image. Uh, a third question would be uh, more uh, practical of separation from the world. As you know, the Jews were... Uh, both ethnically and religiously Jewish, and they stay to themselves. Um, in my Friday morning Bible study, we're going through Joshua, and we go through all the different instances of, of how they take the cities and how uh, special they are and not to mix with uh, the people of Canaan. So uh, this is a real question for uh, Christians. Um, one of the things uh, I think that comes out of this is a consideration of twin citizenship. Um, hearing uh, the sermon this morning on uh, the idea of being in the world but not of the world, and, and we can go back and forth of what that means. Clearly, it's not one or the other. Uh, and so um, Christ's uh, moment, uh, a lot of uh, early church historians pick up on these, this verse about rendering unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's, and unto God, those things that are God's. And again, uh, a long discussion throughout history. 
I don't know that we'll have time to get through uh, Calvin's understanding of civil government, but it's certainly based on this sense, serious sense, about obeying earthly governments uh, to a certain extent, uh, and that extent goes pretty far. Uh, so be subject to earthly authorities. So in this sense, the Christians of the early church were having a, a hard time understanding exactly how they were perhaps Roman citizens or citizens elsewhere um, and how that uh, worked in. Now, not everyone was too keen on entering on, into the world in the same way. Uh, Tertullian uh, usually gets the, uh, the nod for the, the curmudgeon, as it were, although we have to remember, on the other hand, Tertullian is the one who identified the word Trinity, and he did a lot of very important things in the early church. You always have to understand the biography of theologians, right? Uh, Tertullian, like Augustine, had come from a conversion out of the world and had experienced uh, everything that the world had offered and had been very good at it from, from the games and the sex and the, and the stories and the worship and so forth. And for him, uh, the complete break uh, was a more necessary thing, unlike Augustine, who took a long time to deal with it and comes out on a different way. So Tertullian, though, uh, can find verses um, that I'm sure, uh, to some degree, uh, the Amish would maybe be referring to the same uh, verses of, my kingdom's not of this world, and also come out from a, among them and be separate. So there were uh, ways to look in the Bible and find verses that perhaps would uh, support. So that's the, the real problem of not having cross-references and seeing the entire uh, Hebrew Bible, Christian Old Testament, and New Testament as one revelation. So the second question, as I uh, said, was this. Um, how does Greek philosophy help explain uh, the nature of the world? Uh, the point, uh, probably in Christian history, is that we are, we are people of our times. We're people in the world. Uh, God, although appears to be silent at times, has uh, worked in the structure of the world. There is goodness in the world because of common grace. There's also a lot of sin. Uh, but Christians had to look at this and say, how far do we go uh, in structuring our thought? Uh, the Christians obviously from very early on had a sense of who Jesus was, uh, especially after Matthew 16. But uh, to define, <clears throat> sorry, to define exactly what that meant later on in the Nicene Creed about uh, true God from true God, begotten, not made, all those sorts of uh, phrases, um, that was still very much um, something to work through in the early church. So in this case, uh, Christians would certainly uh, look at natural law. Natural law was open to philosophers. Um, we like to think, uh, in especially the Reformed tradition of common grace, Louis Burkhoff uh, writes this, uh, common grace curbs the destructive power of sin, maintains in a measure the moral order of the universe, thus making an orderly life possible, distributes in varying degrees gifts and talents among men, promotes the development of science and art, and showers untold blessings upon the children of men. So uh, pretty important uh, that that is given to all people, common grace. 
but what role does so-called pagan philosophy take? Right, and that's uh, in the early church. Pagani, pagan, meant ignorant. Right, so in some ways, the understanding is people who haven't heard much about the gospel. If they're a pagan, perhaps upon learning about it, uh, they pretty quickly accept the truth, and there's a, certainly a process of, of going forward. That's a, a pagan. On the other hand, they define a heretic as one who had been presented with the gospel truth and had looked at it, evaluated it, and still rejected it, though. So there's a big difference between uh, Pagani and, and heretic in, in the early church. So to what degree were some of the philosophers pagans, right? So we know St. Paul goes to Corinth uh, and goes to Athens and to these places. He's not running away from them uh, as perhaps Tertullian was. Um, so uh, Tertullian rejects all Christian, uh, all Greco-Roman philosophy and its structure of it. Augustine, we're going to see, uh, carefully uh, looks at it and uses some of it, although transforms it as well. Uh, another misunderstanding, and uh, I've luckily heard this at church too, uh, uh, making sure people don't misunderstand this, so we've already said it, uh, but we have to underline the fact of faith, right? Faith today, very often in our uh, postmodern world especially, as seen as if you can't figure it out, you have to just sort of jump off the cliff and hope that things go well, right? That's faith, right? So it's sort of blind, isn't it? But in the early church, it was very, very clear uh, that faith uh, was knowing and acting, actually. Uh, Fide in Latin and the Greek, uh, pistis, faithfulness, uh, fidelity, loyalty, commitment, trust, belief, and even proof, believe it or not. Paul's letter to Hebrews 11, we have to stress, right? Faith is the assurance, <laughs> assurance, right, uh, of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, right? So, again, what is seeing <laughs> uh, is very important. Uh, if you talk to artists uh, or perhaps even policemen, right, everybody's looking at the same thing. And if, with the trained eye, you see things that a lot of people don't see. So... Uh, we uh, certainly see some things as Christians that others don't see. Uh, things seen, belief in Jesus, Son of God. We'll talk about the Greek term logos in a minute. Uh, saw miracles. Uh, so faith, a summary of truths revealed in the Bible and Jesus' life. Even in 1250, uh, the great Thomas Aquinas says the act of the intellect, right, intellect now, it doesn't sound like... <laughs> Uh, the definition of faith today, but the intellect assessing, assenting to divine truth, owing to the movement of the will, which in itself moved by the grace of God. So I think he does a pretty good job at helping us bridge that gap. Now, we've often heard, and even today, as uh, Preston talked about Donatism, right? So uh, we can't get this idea that uh, under uh, persecution, uh, Christianity was growing slowly and that everyone who was calling themselves a Christian uh, was later on what we would consider Orthodox Christianity, even within the Nicene Creed. Uh, many places were growing quickly, but we can see all the, the stars in this case were some of the centers of Christianity. Uh, but the areas that are 
Uh, the, these areas here actually brought my other little clicker. Uh, these areas that are radiating here, right? These uh, uh, almost like bullseyes here. All of these are early Christian uh, heresies that are very, very close to the truth, right? This idea that the devil has a red, you know, uniform on and a pitchfork and ears. No, it's usually uh, very, very close to the truth that's uh, uh, sent away. So uh, Donatism, of course, was very important heresy in the early church for its strength, and it's sitting near Carthage, and we know that Augustine is the bishop of Hippo. Hippo was right outside of Carthage, um, and so that's a very important place here. Uh, what we do notice is that what we look at Western or Latin-speaking Europe uh, is quite backward now, right? Uh, Constantine has taken the capital from Rome over to Constantinople, and so there's a lot more activity happening in the Greek-speaking world here than in the Latin-speaking world. Uh, what is interesting, however, as I said last time, um, and is partly a lot of the particular studies I'm doing right now in Celtic uh, world, is that Christianity comes up to England um, and depending on the, the time period, we know we're starting to realize that long before even St. Patrick, uh, there was much Christian activity that even this particular older map doesn't show, uh, even in places like Ireland, but a lot of activity um, in uh, England. And then a lot of the missionization of the north, we're going to see, uh, actually comes from here, around up to here, and then, and then here, and then down again. So it's not, it's not radiating necessarily from here uh, in that sense. So we could uh, do a whole lesson just on that. We'll move on. Um, every once in a while, I want to show that I'm following Mark Knowles' uh, structure, uh, both because uh, as one of my professors, uh, I suppose the influence is still there, but just to sort of stay on track with uh, his expertise and the turning points. Um, so a couple of things to talk about now are uh, canon, episcopacy, and creeds. And these are all very important developments in the early church. Uh, canon, of course, we think of a canon as something that shoots a cannonball. <laughs> uh, but, of course, the most important thing, and even canons, is the ballistics of how to fire a cannon and hit something. The only good thing about early canons, and uh, even in class the other week we are talking about uh, uh, Vice President Burr challenging Hamilton to a duel, and of course he shoots Hamilton, who later dies. Right? That those little pistols that were not yet rifled <laughs> were very inaccurate, and so you, even from certain paces uh, you went away. But what I'm trying to underline is the idea that measurement and mathematics is so important in cannon fire. The original uh, idea of a cannon then was a measurement, right? A mathematical almost measurement of facts and details. And so scripture becomes a canon uh, of one's life. Um, and uh, Kevin's sermon too about uh, deacons and, and servant board and what, what are we emulating of that, right? That's a sort of a canon of uh, how God's spirit works and how we uh, work with God. So scripture becomes the measure of belief the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, God's word to the Jews, and the earliest Christians are all important. A second area that's developing is episcopacy, right? The whole question of leadership. 
which cities were important, which men. Once the disciples and early apostles are no longer around, it's a major issue about leadership and, and canon. Uh, and again, we don't at this point have a set list of books of the New Testament that everyone is agreeing on. Most people, of course, are agreeing on a large part of it, but there's a lot of little books, the Shepherd of Hermes, the Didache, and so forth, floating around, uh, and people are understanding what's the canon, what's the episcopacy in this case. The last thing are creeds, right? We find certainly creeds uh, that are in the New Testament themselves. We, uh, the earliest ones are important, but to expand on those, right? The difference between uh, doctrine uh, from Scripture um, and theology which expands on things, right? It's a, it's a dangerous uh, uh, idea. I know when I took theology at Wheaton, um, one of the professors used to always say, taken in the right way, it is with great humor that we begin to theologize, right? <laughs> Understanding that uh, there's, there's biblical theology from, directly from Scripture, and then there's the, the, the things that we build up. So uh, the creeds were very important at this time. So here's a, a look at the early uh, canon, uh, 27 books, as you know, uh, called The Measurement. Um, it's really uh, 367. Now, by giving such a late date, again, I want to underline that it's not that people had no idea what the books should be. A lot of them were there. Uh, it took a long time, however. So on the other hand, the comfort is to say for people who said, oh, they, you know, if, if uh, non-Christians say, well, what do you believe the Bible uh, for? It was sort of just thrown together and everybody must have just said, here's what it has to be. Well, uh, 367 years of talking about this, of arguing, no doubt praying about it in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, uh, that's, the, that's the comfort side, I think, of it taking so long uh, in that. But uh, we get the different... Uh, listings here. Of course, uh, already uh, just after that time, the great Jerome decides in Latin-speaking West that fewer people know Greek and a little bit of Aramaic, uh, that he would translate the Bible into uh, into Latin, uh, which is called the Vulgate. And in Latin, vulgare simply means just like the word vulgar, uh, which today, in the 21st century, I'm not sure people know what that is anymore, right? But vulgare simply means common language uh, of the day. So the interest was uh, to get people in their own language. Of course, the, the downside of that is once the Vulgate starts, it continues on, and until the Reformation, really, when the uh, Bible is finally translated into new languages like English and French and Dutch uh, and other languages, uh, that the Vulgate continues on until almost Vatican II uh, in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, so it loses its original purpose of being able to be read by the common people. Uh, this is the hardest thing to kind of uh, grapple with, and um, there could still be... Uh, discussions uh, at the philosophical, theological level uh, that I've been part of for years as well, uh, just how uh, Greek philosophy has a certain structure. But no doubt, I think we can all comfortably say that God speaks to uh, a generation of, of people who aren't following him in ways in which the structure of the world has pieces there that people can uh, can can look at and gain. So one of the things 
uh, of the day was certainly using the terms and concepts of a particular culture and civilization to describe the gospel. And I want to underline, right, use but not abuse. Uh, Start with but transform, which is really important. Uh, Stoicism becomes the backbone of the Roman Empire. Uh, The Greeks were known for philosophy. The Roman world was really known for more organization, for taking the polis and making an empire, um, and a lot of things, but they relied on Greek philosophy. Um, The last part of Greek philosophy, the Stoa, which was porch, um, they were, uh, uh, Stoicism develops, um, and trying to keep it simple here, it develops in in a way in which um, I think the, the seeds of even Paul's message I showed you last time in Athens to the unknown God. Uh, the Greeks had uh, believed in the multi-gods, you, you know, Zeus, and of course Athena from Athens was a patron deity. Uh, but they had started constructing a sense that perhaps justice to be universal, because the problem with polytheism was not only did the gods begin to deceive uh, humans, but they deceived themselves, and there's a whole game going on. And the golden scales, even in Homer's Iliad, right, was an attempt to say, uh, is it really a, a play going on all the time? And humans, of course, are going to always lose. Uh, the concept of decay, justice, uh, for the Greeks already, was very, very important to get beyond. Almost with the uh, mat, M-A-T-T, the feather with the Egyptians, was also to say there is something higher than even the gods. Uh, In in one passage it says even even Ra, the sun god, uh, is under mat, right? So it's a concept, It's it's not something. So even within polytheism, there was something that was leading them toward something larger, universal, but they couldn't articulate it, you see. And so so important that Paul said, that unknown God there, right? You, you have a sense of it, but you can't quite get there. Even Plato and Aristotle, you know, trying to get outside the cave, you know, I'm telling you uh, who this is. So the concept of logos develops, right? It's the same thing. Uh, They call it the eternal fire. So they're trying to do science philosophy together and saying, how does does the universe work, right? And so fire and water and air and these sorts of things. Well, Logos was the eternal fire. And the beauty, though, was that the Stoics would say the human body with its emotions is pathos. Uh, But the, the beautiful thing is a spark from the eternal fire comes into humanity and sits inside. And the problem with the Stoics is to say, um, if in fact you follow your pathos, you will, like a wet blanket, put that spark out. But in fact, if you give up your pathos, in English even, you're not pathetic anymore, right? You're not going to be victimized. Uh, The path is to learn how to put that down and to exercise the divine spark in the emanation of that to get back. Now, that's the structure, and uh, it it was really the backbone between, uh, even in the military of the Romans, to to have a structured life and to get beyond themselves and so forth. So we'll just sort of hold for there. Uh, People are going to have questions after, and we can have private discussions on that. But logos is going to be a very important concept here. 
Logos uh, for the Stoics was known through reason. Um, the individual thought. Uh, the group, virtue for the group, is what you wanted to practice, arete. You wanted to avoid hubris, which was blind arrogance of yourself, and, and move forward. Now, of course, in this case, um, it's not a Christian concept here. Emanations from the Logos were very important for them, the divine fire. Um, Aristotle, that's why he said, uh, we work through recollections from somewhere. So what were they recollecting? Well, the divine spark from the Logos was in them. Uh, Origen, of course, was one of the closest ones to work through Christ as Logos, uh, but he went too far, and, and of course, uh, uh, although many things Origen said in the early church were very valuable, in this particular case, um, he was condemned uh, by several synods. So by the time we get to the Nicene Creed in 325, so what happens is uh, Nicaea, as you know, is a place in western Turkey. So uh, Constantinople sits uh, uh, by the Black Sea, and just below there is Nicaea. So they call the Council of Nicaea, and it gets very good representation from a lot of Mediterranean uh, Christian groups. So they all come here. And of course, the problem is going to become trying to have a conversation where one's primary language is Greek and another person whose primary language is Latin. And it's okay to translate, but if any of you know you're more than uh, lingually challenged and, and you, you, you know different languages, you know that language translation is sometimes an approximation. And if you know more than one language, you find yourself wanting to throw in these so-called foreign words that have much more meaning uh, in English. I always joke with my students that uh, in the English language we have love, right? So I love chocolate cake. I love my parents. God loves me, right? So it's all the same word, love, which is almost meaningless. In Greek, there's four words for love, right? So uh, very important to understand that words carry meanings, and you can't just translate very easily uh, the words. And that's why it's so important in our preaching, the, the background of Hebrew and Greek, uh, and to talk about what those words really mean. Uh, now, we can see here, even John... Uh, is struggling to explain uh, this notion of who Jesus is. And it's interesting that if we look at the Greek and we look at the translation, instead of using the word word, uh, we'll just simply use the, uh, uh, the word logos. So in the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. And then uh, way down, this is the, diff the great difference, though, between Stoics. Uh, and Christians, is that the Logos became flesh uh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. Now, for people trained in Stoicism, this would have been so powerful. You know, you, you can't, I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, a group that maybe hasn't done enough philosophy. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you have, but if you really spend time in this, it's just such a big punch uh, to understand in the context of the early church what that meant to them. Um, even uh, the great uh, Pope Benedict, who was probably the greatest scholar in the last hundred years among many of the popes, uh, even said this, the God who is Logos guarantees the intelligibility of the world, the aptitude 
uh, of reason to know God and the reasonableness of God, one way to sort of reflect on it. Uh, if you have looked at a lot of stained glass windows of older churches, it was very common to have this symbol in, in different colors in stained glass windows, trying to figure out, uh, of course, the stained glass windows are often called the Bible of the illiterate people of the Middle Ages, where God's in the center, and you have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, to try to work it out in a way that's obviously not sufficient to the fullness of the truth, but to try to sketch it out some way to say each one is God but not the other. And so talking about that, it took a long time to come up with words in both Greek and Latin that each side was satisfied uh, about what that really meant. Um, Needing to move on. Episcopacy, right? The early church, we often uh, look at this, and it's a a, a very fitting Sunday uh, talking about uh, our servant leader board to look at where this comes from in the early church. We see a number of different things, uh, words used. Uh, The bishops, the episcopoi, uh, the deacons, the diaconal, the presiding uh, officers, and also the elders uh, in the early church. But what exactly was the role and how do we interpret these things? Now, we can look at it from different ways just quickly. The Roman Catholics, uh, Scripture, and early bishops, since so many heresies, heresies, there was a a necessary strict authority. Uh, Matthew 16, 18, 19, of course, is the verse that uh, Roman Catholics used for the understanding of the papacy, although that really took hundreds of years to really develop into papacy. It was really talking about the chief bishop at the time. Uh, I tell you, Peter, on this rock I build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I give you the keys of the kingdom um, and whoever you bind on earth uh, shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Um, in a reform, uh, Roman Catholic tradition, the great faith that the early church had very few errors. In the Protestant world in general, uh, they recognize the church offices uh, in general, teachers, leaders, deacons, but often see uh, in uh, great contrast to the Roman Catholics that the church hierarchy was very pragmatic and necessity necessary for the times. Uh, and in general, uh, of course, Protestants say that Matthew 16, 18 wasn't referring to Peter, the first bishop, but upon uh, the confession itself. Uh, the rock, the pierre, uh, is both Peter in French, as you know. Pierre is Peter, but it also means rock, right? So back and forth, language is of all importance. Um, the Reformed tradition, I think, uh, is a little bit more bold in this. Authority and office, still very important as an extension of biblical authority and work of Christ in the church, in which today even our new members, uh, this understanding of the structure of the church, uh, corporate and covenant. Non-denominational uh, American evangelicals, though, often authority and office is taught, but not it's less important in that sense, right? So uh, transfer of membership uh, isn't often done in independent churches in that sense. So we saw Constantine, we won't spend much time on this um, uh, in his uh, fight. So what we're talking about here is the, the red areas are the Uh, Greek-speaking area, which eventually becomes the Byzantine Empire, which is Christianized. 
It's interesting that there was always an emperor, however, in Constantinople, and then there were patriarchs. In Rome, however, we cease to have an emperor after a while, and there's only the bishop uh, there as well. Okay, uh, so what we see, uh, like two minutes, or is it? Yeah, well, we're over already, right? Yeah, yeah. okay, we're over. Okay, uh, uh, yeah, I'll take a little office here. We've been over and everything, so I'll, I'll go two minutes. Uh, yeah. Two minutes over, okay. So, they call that touche. Yes, right, that's right. Yeah, so uh, I, I know Preston has used this word Christendom. Uh, so, just to show you where this comes from, the word domus in Latin is very important. It means household, right? So, it's a verb and a noun, it's a territory that's controlled by someone. Therefore, we have kingdom, freedom, right? So Christendom means that, at least in Latin-speaking uh, world, certainly, uh, the church uh, is, uh, in the absence of an emperor, uh, the church is the, the structure of society. It does a lot of things. And it's not that they hold people back. We really should see it as the fact that there wasn't much going for them at the time. And so the church steps in um, in that way. Uh, but there's been, throughout history, uh, the goal of resurrecting the Roman Empire as a Christian nation uh, and, and a notion. So Throughout the Middle Ages, we have the Holy Roman Empire, which are basically about 400 basically German-speaking, if you will, uh, countries in the middle of Europe that really is not over until Napoleon uh, uh, goes through and cleans up a lot of these older governments. Uh, and even the EU, oftentimes people say, is a very secular way of trying to come back to the Roman Empire as well. So, uh, all right, so we, we got through about half of this. Um, yeah, just in, in uh, the future, um, we can, uh, next week then, I'm going to go slower through this and then jump forward. We can talk about uh, early monasticism, and, but I wanted to next week talk about Augustine, a very important person, and then we'll uh, jump forward to uh, the late Middle Ages, which is a very necessary background before we get to Luther and Calvin, uh, then in the next one after that. So we'll stop for here.